mean, my idea of fun back then was to go see an Indian wrestling an alligator in a tent. And my father and I used to do that, those roadside stands. I mean, those were the people that the tourists, the Yankees, snowbirds came in to see. And we would go to those inside those dank tents to watch the tourists. That was our fun because they just were so gullible. Hey, y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Believe it or not, children, there was a time before Disney World. There was a time when Central Florida was nothing but a series of muggy small towns connected by orange groves that stretched as far as the eye could see. That's the world Ann Hall grew up in, and it's the world she's written about in her new memoir called Through the Groves. Ann is one of the very best feature writers in journalism. She was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for uncovering the shoddy care that injured soldiers were getting at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Now she's turned her reporter's eye onto her own childhood, growing up in a troubled family and struggling with her sexuality. But the book is also funny and breezy and so sharply written that by the end, no matter where you are, you'll be smelling orange blossoms. Here's our conversation. There's one thing that I know when I talk about my childhood, I find other people are sort of baffled at. Could you, for the benefit of those folks, describe the mosquito truck? The mosquito truck, as it turns out, is very familiar to, I think, a certain generation. Um, There was a chat on Facebook uh, recently from my book, someone, Craig Pittman, a writer in Florida, wonderful writer about Florida, talked about the mosquito truck and 140 people had a comment about mosquito trucks from Indiana to, to Georgia, of course, to Illinois. So I think it's a generational uh, thing we all experienced. Um, that was only w- one danger of what we experienced besides dipping ourselves in, you know, DDT and off and spraying our faces with it. <laughs> right. And the, and so the mosquito truck for people don't, who weren't around then was a, a truck that would in our neighborhood anyway, drive through usually around dusk, spraying pesticide out the back to, you know, get rid of mosquitoes. And in my neighborhood, at least, kids would like ride their bikes through the spray. You know, did y'all have similar experiences? Exactly. I mean, it would come through at at dusk. The reason I, the reason I did put the mosquito truck in there, because I think it is um, something that so many of us did experience um, is because it did not go on the other side of the tracks, as we called it. It came to the neighborhoods that the city designated were worthy of receiving relief from mosquitoes. So the other people were eaten up alive. And that's sort of why I mentioned the the mosquito truck. Well, this book is, is so, has so much of, I guess, what I think of as sense memories. And it, could you sort of describe maybe in that way what your childhood was like through things that you remember seeing, smelling, touching, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I've always thought, um, even in my journalism, that place is a character. It's every bit uh, uh it's it's a character it's like a human and I, i've tried to treat it that way some don't agree with this but i think that place it shapes us and we are a product of 
the food we ate, the music we heard, the way the air smelled, the way people felt, the way they talked. And that is one of the reasons I wanted to, to write this book is because I wanted to recreate or restore all the sensations of growing up in central Florida on the Orange Grove area. You know, it was called the Ridge. It's hundred miles running up the middle of the state, you know, up from Orlando down to just past Sebring, Florida. And when I was a kid, more oranges were grown there than anywhere else in the world. It was just wall to wall groves. And so when the orange blossoms would bloom, which happened usually in, in April, sometimes late March, it was like a perfume factory. And I remember those smells very, very sharply, as well as the smells from the processing houses, which is where the oranges went to um, cook them down to make juice. And that was more of a burnt caramel smell in the sky. And, uh, mar and the other was like a marmalade. So those sensations were really, really important. And as it turns out, you had to go through that now to, to describe it because it is all gone. Uh, there's no such thing anymore as, as those groves. They're gone. The smell is gone. The way people kind of built their lives around the, the rhythm of the crops is gone. Um, and that's just one aspect of, of why I wanted to write the book and also the loneliness and the, the vast emptiness that, that Central Florida used to be. You know, my dad had used to say he carried a, a sleeve of saltines and a gallon jug of water and a toilet paper in his Ford which he would use and drive around the orange groves all day. And he said, you know, you can eat all the oranges you want out here, but you're shit out of luck if you need a pay phone or a flush toilet. <laughs> and that was miles and miles. <laughs> so yeah, I wanted to describe the smells. Yeah. And also the loneliness and the emptiness. Yeah. And, and your, this relationship with your dad and your mom is sort of the sort of central to this book. Your dad made a living in the orange business and you, uh, we're, we're following him and riding in the car with him quite a bit along the ways from the time you were a little kid. And it didn't dawn on you until a little later that the reason for that was that you were sort of the safety valve to maybe keep him from hitting the bars in the afternoon. Do you ever get a sense of sort of why he drank? Like others from that generation, I think he would have benefited from some sort of antidepressant. You know, um, he was also just too sensitive for the world in some ways. And he felt like he had to be in this, uh, you know, agricultural world, which is, which is some rough, they could be rough people. And that wasn't what my father should have done. Uh, but he wanted the approval of his family and he did love, he did love citrus I don't know if he would have been a professional writer, but he was a sociology major at Florida State. So I think um, he was miscast in his life, perhaps having some regrets. His father was also an alcoholic. That's in there. And I think he, a lot of people in his family that we call it in the South, as you know, he was nervous. He had nerves. And it was just someone who's, who the pressure was always too much for my dad. You paint a really nuanced portrait of, of both your parents and other family members and that sort of thing. But when you were a kid and all this was happening and you you and your mom and your brother left and all that sort of thing, did you have a, a feeling that your dad was the bad guy and all this and your mom was sort of the good guy? Yes, but not, my mother never, never said spoke ill of my father after everything. And she encouraged me to visit him Um 
you know, after they split up, but I was the one who sort of punished my father, maybe for breaking up our family, but I really for, he, he was lost to me. Um, he was taken out of my life and I was mad. And I remember feeling more anger than anything. And my way of dealing with it was to withhold myself from him for many years. And of course, now I see how damaging that is. Um, but that's what I knew at 12 and unfortunately kept that for, for several years. <laughs> as this, all this is happening, as you describe in the book, there's this looming knowledge that Disney World is coming. You know, Walt Disney has, has sort of picked this part of the world to be where he's building his next big theme park. And at the time, you know, everybody now knows what happened. Orlando and all that sort of area is just this vast, you know, theme parks and, and hotels and all these sorts of things. But back then, I, I don't know how people imagined what would happen, but I do get the sense from reading the book that you guys knew something bad was going to be happening. It, you sense that it's coming. I mean, the way, of course, I don't remember all the details. So I used my reporting skills to report out some of this. Um, so it was in the paper, like a drumbeat all the time. Um, and that was a sense it was coming. And you often heard some sounds like a sonic boom, maybe once we were out on the North part of the Ridge, which is closer to Orlando, uh, we were in a, a pasture next to a cow, cow pasture. And it was full of white birds, you know, the scavenger birds, they're sitting on cows back or they're on the soggy ground. All of a sudden, they, hundreds of them lift at once. And it was actually frightening because they vacuumed the air. I asked my father when I saw him 10 minutes later, I said, the birds, they just something scared them. And he said it was a sonic boom from Walt Disney World construction. So in that way, I kind of tied evil together. But it was also, I never, ever liked Disney World. Even as a kid, I didn't want to go there. I mean, my idea of fun back then was to go see an Indian wrestling an alligator in a tent. And my father and I used to do that, those roadside stands. I mean, those were the people that the tourists, the Yankees, snowbirds came in to see. And we would go to those inside those dank tents to watch the tourists. That was our fun because they just were so gullible. You know, you talked about, I think it was your your aunt's roadside stand or somebody's in your family's roadside stand that, you know, part of your job was to sort of extract money from all the, the tourists who were coming through. That's right. I mean, we were part of the, the, the institutional robbing of Yankees uh, every bit <laughs> as much, just kind of had a nicer little setup as opposed to a dark tent that stank like dead snake. Yeah, you, you, for my, for, it was my great aunt. She was married to my uncle Roy and he really cared for the groves in our family. And it was only a hundred acres, but in those days you could send a kid to college if you had a hundred acres of, of groves. And so my aunt Dot was an art, an artist and uh, she craved also a, a bigger life than what she had. They were very religious. You know, she cooked three meals a day. They went to church as you know, Wednesday, twice Sunday, probably something in between, no dancing, no music. And she craved a larger life. That is a theme, I think, in the book with the women that I was exposed to. They, they craved something they couldn't explain or they couldn't define themselves. But with, with my aunt Dot, the fruit stand was sort of her performance space. She got to run the money. She got to run the cash register. She put on red lipstick there. 
And she loved talking to outsiders. They brought stories to her. Talking about the women in the family I, I, and, and the idea of kind of sense memory. There's so much music in this book from the Broadway tunes that your your mom loved to listen to, to the, you know, the, the transistor radio that you have in the bed at night. Later on, as you're sort of figuring out your sexuality, you kind of fixate on Carly Simon and go buy this Carly Simon album. And are there particular songs that even now will trigger some strong memories from back then for you? Well, when my father and I rode together, we would just wait for the radio to come back on because it was all dead. It was all static or alien whistles. And so we would constantly fiddle with the, with the knob to find a station. And, you know, when we came to Wachula um, and my dad would go, this is the Wachula Symphony Orchestra playing right now. And it was a country station back then, but I always associate a boy named Sue by Johnny Cash with my father. Don't ask me why, but we heard it in the car that day. And that always triggers. Yeah. And with Carly Simon, that was uh, when I was just beginning to think, row, something's going on here. Because I love to look at the album cover of Carly Simon and no secrets. She's in Paris with a suede hat and a tight shirt and no bra. And I just love to see that cover, yet couldn't exactly know why. Well, that's interesting. You So... A good portion of this book is about that struggle. So you grew up clearly as sort of a tomboy, you know. You ran around with no shirt on until you were old enough where you had to go to school. You didn't want to play with dolls when you were a kid. You wanted to play with the toys that the boys were playing with. But then later on, there are also these moments like when you first go to college and you are trying to do the sorority rush and you're devastated because you can't get in. It feels like there was kind of a push and pull within you trying to figure out. That's that's very true. I mean, I resisted the dolls being forced on me as a kid, and I resented it that these people, these relatives, clearly knew I did not want to play with dolls, and yet they kept foisting them on me. So it was a little bit of a rebellion, and I you know, grew to not like dolls even more. I'd rather be in a tree. I'd rather be with the boys, building forts, that kind of thing. As I get older, you just become more, a girl does, I think, more aware of expectations. And the expectation was to sort of, yeah, wear dresses to church, don't cuss, don't hang out with the boys, at least at that age. And that didn't feel normal to me. And so the older I got, the more it became clear those expectations needed to be met. And I am the last person who should ever join a sorority. (laughs) Why I went out for sorority rush at Florida State is a mystery. It is some form of acceptance. I was looking for something, and thank the Lord I did not get into one. There are a couple of moments that I thought along these lines that are pretty funny to me, at least in the telling now. One is after having, you know, one or two of your first experiences, you're leaving the house one day. And kind of over the shoulder to your mom, you're like, uh, bye, mom, I might be gay. And, and, and that cracked me up when I read it. I'm wondering kind of how you felt in the moment as you were saying it. Yeah, that, what, a, what an idiot thing to say, right? Um, <laughs> and yes, I had, that was my first experience with another woman on my Christmas break, uh, my freshman year of college. And I was going back to college that morning. My friends were outside, toot, toot, honk, honk. They're here to pick me up, drive back to Tallahassee. And I was just so beside myself. I didn't know what to do because I had said goodbye to this woman at midnight the night before. 
I just blurted it out. And yeah, I guess that was the first words I said to my mother. I, I didn't even know if I was gay, but I just needed, I was exploding and I had to say something to someone, you know? So that, that was not handled uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> the other, the other thing that cracked me up about all this is that you eventually became a sales rep for Revlon, which I thought, you know, like the sorority thing of all the jobs that you would get that, how did that even happen? You know, I dropped out of college and I didn't know what to do. And someone asked me if I wanted to be, to work for Revlon. Uh, you didn't need much experience. All you needed to do was basically wear a short skirt and drive around and talk to, you know, drug wholesalers about shampoo. So I did that. I didn't have anything else going on in my life. I was looking for any kind of thing to save me. So I took the job. And once again, uh, some sadomasochistic impulse in me, like the sorority to, to work for Revlon. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It, it's funny now, but I was so unhappy. I thought I cannot do this for the rest of my life. First of all, I'm a terrible salesperson, terrible, <laughs> terrible with math, terrible at lying to people, how badly they need 35 cases of, you know, cream rinse. <laughs> so it was, it was a disaster. And I was so low at the end of that year that I, I just quit, didn't have a job, didn't have anything, and took a, a very, very low-paying job uh, in the newsroom at the St. Petersburg Times. And the rest is history. When we come back, Ann Hall talks about how not everybody remembers the stories in her book the same way she does, and how she learned to live with that. And I'm sure I, I did get things wrong, but as a journalist, it's our worst fear. And um, at some point, I just had to give myself permission to make a mistake. That and more ahead on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Ann Hull. Part of what I had to read this book in is in the context of how things are now down there, where certainly a lot of people have minorities of all kinds feel like they're um, not being heard in Florida. And in fact, maybe being kind of welcome to leave Florida. I'm wondering how you see that now, or if you hear, still hear from friends and family down there. Yeah, we hear about that constantly. So I don't know how it's on the ground for most Floridians. I know it's a hellscape for LGBT Floridians. There is uh, a sense of heightened security, NAACP gay, gay organizations have put out a safety alert. Don't go to Florida. It's, it, it's a dangerous place. That is really serious. And of course, the most vulnerable are, are trans folk, but it extends to everybody who's gay. And the hostility is, is remarkable. 
it's, it's remarkable. You'll be sitting at a bar, a guy I know, a straight guy went down to Florida recently, and he was just sitting at the bar after work. And this guy comes up to the bar stool next to him and says, what do you think of this woke shit? You believe it? He's like, I don't know why you said it to me. I'm, I'm not gay, but it's, it's kind of everywhere. I mean, Florida has always been full of carpetbaggers <laughs> and it really is now. Right. Well, that, that's what it's what's interesting to me about all this is that Florida's always had that reputation as where people go for second chances. You know, they may have washed out somewhere else or may want to restart their lives or whatever it is. And they go down to Florida to start again. Florida, in my mind, has always been the place that like took in all the sinners, right? Instead of trying to cast them out. And, and it, it just feels like a different, uh, just a whole different way of thinking now, you know? Right. I mean, remember, this is Clearwater, Florida is, the, is where Hooters uh, <laughs> began. It's, it's the, the headquarters of the chain, which had several offshoots like Melons and Jugs. Those were bars and wing joints, okay, in the, in the 90s. Right. So it's, it, is this, it is this contradiction in that you can go into Publix, the grocery store, and a thong bottom and a t-shirt and flip-flops, and that's fine. And yet there's this, you know, it is a puritanical wave that's going on now. It's, it's a real, it's a real split screen thing. Um, but Florida has had a history of a, an institutional history against uh, gays. There was a legislative committee that, that was formed in 1956 by a guy named Charlie Johns. He was a, a state rep from Stark, Florida, which is known for prison town. Now he had a legislative committee that, spent seven, eight years trying to root out homosexual professors and instructors at every Florida college. And they used kind of underhanded investigative methods. They had long, long lens cameras. They taped people. It was really sinister and lives were ruined over that sort of thing. And the, the upsetting thing is that it was funded by the Florida taxpayers for close to 10 years. So there is an institutional history alongside the contradiction of so much skin, and now it's so much sin. You mentioned that uh, a little earlier on that you did some of your own reporting on some of this stuff, and it, it seems pretty clear that you talked to some family members and friends and that sort of thing and sort of animated some of these memories in, in some ways. Did any of the people you talked to have different versions of the stuff that you remembered? Well, you know, when I went on the fact-finding missions, which included talking to as many people as I could find and going to the towns where we lived and looking at the newspapers from the years I was describing, which was really helpful just from a writing standpoint, because you're cued to all these, all these things you, you forgot happened. And that was really helpful. But I never, unlike journalism, I did not read back parts of the story to them. And so they had no way of, you know, saying this is true. This isn't true. My brother read every word and my brother actually has a wonderful memory. And so he and I disagree on some fundamental things. There's a scene in the book. It's an important scene with my father and a gun. And my brother does not remember the gun. He just remembers crying, really afraid in the back seat. He said, it could have happened. I just couldn't have seen it maybe in the back seat, but I know I was upset, very upset. So that was, that was kind of a, 
uh, yeah, that was a fundamental difference in our memories. And, you know, some memoirs put their, their footnotes in the back, not footnotes, but sort of clarification on, I had my brother read this or had my, I had the sources read this and they disagree. Well, that's how memory is. And so I just felt like we know that related getting things wrong was my fear that, and I'm sure I, I did get things wrong, but as a journalist, it's our worst fear. And um, at some point I just had to give myself permission to make a mistake. And that, that was hard. It's just, you, you, you've got to let that go. It's a memory and it's a child's memory. I mean, the, one of my favorite poets is Louise Gluck. And she said, we look at the world once in childhood, the rest is memory. It's beautiful. So that's the, that's the world I tried to go back to. One thing that really struck me is there's a moment when you talk about the letters that your dad wrote to you over the years. And after you quote from a couple of these letters, you sort of reveal that you thought you had thrown them all away, but then you discovered in a, I think that you put a musty black trunk that you had not thrown them all away. What was it like to discover that? My brother had the letters. So for me to discover all those letters was, honestly, it was two feelings. One, as a reporter. Gold, yeah. Jackpot, yes. And the other is just how kind of the, the damage I'd, I'd done by cutting myself out of my father's life. And to see him explain it was is just heartbreaking. Yeah, you're filled with regret and um you can't change some things you do. I mean, my brother would say, you were just a kid. Kids do things like that. But boy, to read those letters as an adult, it was wrenching. What else was in the musty black trunk? Uh, yearbooks, um, pictures from his family, beautiful pictures, things like things, little ephemera like that. Not, not a, a ton, but the letters that were sacred. I mean, they were, I'm talking a stack, you know, of legal bound paper inside the envelopes, probably 30 of them. What do you think you inherited from your mom and dad? Hmm. We write everything down. They always did. And another way I kind of recreated the childhood is my mother used to write down, especially when we were broke, how much money she spent that month. So a budget. And I mean, it had like, you know, 39 cents for a, a marble at the store. She wrote down everything. And my father wrote down everything. And from a standpoint of trying to recreate it, it made things so just such a gift, but I do the same thing too. We're better when we write something as opposed to maybe talking to people. It's a more passive form of communication, I guess, but it's, it's just the way we all express. My brother is not a writer and he's the same way. To narrow it a little further, obviously, besides maybe the writing part, are there things that you got from them, drew from them that have helped you in your career as a journalist? Curiosity. Um, they were both uh, sociology majors. My mother switched over to become a Spanish major, but they were observers of people always. And my father could tell a story and that was from his watching um, you know, Rick Bragg is, is one of the most masterful storytellers I know. And he's also, he grew up with watching, you know, he watched himself, he watched the world around him very closely. And, uh, I think I've always been more comfortable in the background. And so watching is preferable to me 
than being in the foreground. So the book has a little bit about, you know, your your adult life, you know, your that year at FSU, and then a little bit about your work at the Washington Post, and a little bit about some other things. But it basically, kind of the 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 core of the book is about your childhood. Why did you decide to stop there? That's a good question. I originally thought I'd stop at at thirteen or fourteen, but I'm a, a gay person. I'm a lesbian, so that was that. So much of my childhood, my likes, my dislikes, my insecurities were from that. To stop that and not go on with the story seemed untruthful. I originally wasn't going to put in about my sexuality. I wasn't going to do it. I didn't want to do it. There's a million books like that. But I came to see that it had to be acknowledged in some way because that's that's the whole point of the childhood. You can see this kid is going to be something. What is it? We think we know, but but let's let's see that through. I think one thing you inherited from your folks was manners. Because there's a moment, obviously, toward the end of the book where at your father's funeral, the minister sort of prays for your soul to be saved from homosexuality. And you do not respond by burning the church down. So I I thought that that politeness is probably something that you, you grew up with as well. Well, it was my brother must have it also, because the origin of that is my father was on his deathbed and a minister was kind of coming to see him and talk to him. The minister knew that dad was dying and said to my brother at the hospital, is there anything your dad had unresolved in his life? And my brother, who's very polite said, well, um, his daughter's gay. Uh, you know, and so he just tossed it out there, like give the guy a bone. No one knew that this minister would use that at the, this, the burial at the, at the graveside service in plant city, Florida. And so <laughs> I was just stunned. I couldn't believe it. I was mad at my brother, first of all, but he didn't mean it. I just, I couldn't believe the selfishness of hijacking. My father would have not liked that. Never mind me. It's just like, that is such a selfish act, which I think a lot of, a lot of that Christianity is a selfish act, but it gets even worse because not only did I not tell him to, you know, go jump in a lake, I ran into him at an Applebee's in Plant City about four years later with a friend who's in the book, she introduced him to me and I'm like, nice to meet you. How, how are you? Uh, good to see you. And I, it was the preacher and I just didn't have the nerve to, you know, I didn't have the nerve to say anything. Maybe that's partially why I wrote the book. <laughs> well, and he probably knows now if he's still around. Um, <laughs> you didn't, you don't write much about your, you know, Washington Post life and that sort of thing in the book. But I do want um, to tell listeners anyway about at least one story, which is the story you want to appeal to for um, about the wounded soldiers at Walter Reed, the big army hospital. And to sum up a very large story, very succinctly, uh, the our country and that hospital in particular were mistreating a lot of the soldiers who were there. And I'm wondering... First of all, what it was like to tackle that story, because it felt like that's a really high emotion story to tackle, and also whether you stayed in touch with any of those folks. So this was, yeah, the, 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 the image of Walter Reed Army Medical Center during the war was one of celebrities 
going to the amputee ward, they always went to Ward 57 and walked through the halls with cameras, politicians, Hulk Hogan, everybody did that. And you got the feeling that, A, the, vet, the wounded soldiers were being cared for perfectly. You never heard about anything else. This was just amputations. So that was the mythology surrounding Walter Reed Army Medical Center. And we, my, my reporting partner was as Dana Priest, who covered the, the Pentagon and, and the CIA. So she actually heard a tip, and that was that the wounded soldiers recovering of Walter Reed, of which there were hundreds, were lingering and stuck there because their paperwork was lost. People were screwing up appointments. They were living in a hotel there, some for a year. They were putting them in reserve hotels. So it's it was a bureaucracy story more than anything. Why are they here? Why, why aren't they getting their disability, going home, starting rehab? Their wives lived on the on the army on Walter Reed. So it was a bureaucracy story. So Dana asked me to help her. Um, and we just, you know, as you do in any reporting, you start from the outside, you talk to people on the phone, and then you physically go to see Walter Reed Army Medical Center with your own eyes. And um, at the time, they can't, because of health privacy laws, HIPAA, when you go onto the base, you go through a guard check and they, you know, ask for your ID, all that, which you have to give, but they cannot say, who are you going to see? They say, where are you going today? And I would say, I'm going to the Malone house. And that's the truth. But they had our license every time. It wasn't sneaking in, but, you know, we had to blend in with people. So it was just basically getting to know, getting to know the soldiers who we overheard maybe complaining about their situation. I mean, the minute someone found out who we are, the game was over. And so we were very, very careful not to approach just anyone. And that's how we, we, we built it with anecdotes. And then because the wives were so angry at the way their husbands were being treated, uh, they all bought uh, copiers to copy the records of their husbands. So we had all these records backing up the allegations of the, of the soldiers and their wives. It's right there on paper. And so that was, that was a gift. But it was, mostly, it was mostly like watching and watching and watching. I mean, I, we practically lived there. And did you stay in touch with any of those folks afterwards? A couple of them. Yeah. Dan Shannon is one. He was a sniper who lost his eye. And uh, Josh Calloway was someone who was medevaced out of Iraq after watching his sergeant blow up. And he had terrible PTSD. I haven't talked to him in maybe three years, but we kept in touch quite a bit. It struck me as reading your book, as I, as I read your book, knowing about that story, that a lot of the, and this may be a stretch, but um a lot of the guys who were in your story are guys that a generation ago would have been working in the groves, you know, and that sort of thing. I wonder if you felt any of that connection in that way. I think what I've mostly felt were they largely, a lot of them joined because there were no jobs in their towns, whether it's Mississippi, the rubber plant closed anywhere there. The army was an employer at that time. And these towns had lost everything in that regard. It was very similar to the groves. I didn't make that kind of connection, but I, I, they were being taken advantage of because the industry in their town, the jobs were gone. And so they just went back to Iraq three, four times. That's what sort of motivated me. These poor guys were going back over and over and over. And yeah, they had nothing else. It was their job. The Florida you describe is a, is a place of real beauty, but also it's a hard place, hard on the people, hard on the land. 
uh, hard on everybody. Florida now is a very different place, and especially that part of Florida you describe, as you said, is unrecognizable now. Is it better? It's, to me, a state of outsiders now who claim it as their own. As a personal, you know, hobby, every time I see one of these people in Florida leading book bands or protesting trans kids or at drag brunches, I always, <laughs> what a waste of time, but I always Google them to see where they're from. They're rarely from Florida and they just moved there and they're not even paying much taxes to live there. It's just, it's just, that infuriates me. That has always had some truth to it in Florida. People move there because there's no state tax. It's warm, but it's now, it's now unrecognizable, the soul of the place, because so many people are not from there. What is it like for you now? And again, this may be a stretch, but what is it like for you now to eat an orange? I, it's funny you should say that because one of the things that made me want to write this book was being on a Neiman fellowship. Actually, I had never lived up North as they call it. It's my first experience. And I was so homesick and it was so cold. And I walked into a grocery store and saw, uh, it was the winter time, obviously. And I saw one of those little cute wooden crates with, with clementines inside. And that is straight out of my childhood because those are from California. And my dad was, you know, always praised the Florida tangerine. And that made me so sad and homesick seeing that little $9 crate of clementines. It was, yeah, that's one thing that made me really flashback to childhood. Do, do oranges now, like if you just get one in the store or something like that, do they taste completely different now? They do. And that's not a child uh, glorifying how good things tasted before. It's the best oranges I've had were not from this country. They were in, from Israel or Greece. Uh, so I just, I don't, I almost never buy oranges at the store. They're just, they're just not as, it's a bummer. <laughs> you know, you just don't want to, you don't want to have that disappointment. My mom spent part of her young life in Florida, in a little town called Holly Hill near Daytona. This was back in the 40s before the tourists came flooding in. And even though my mom's family was poor, she could walk down the road every day and get fresh orange juice. It was a daily treasure. In Ann Hull's world, those orange groves were a mixed blessing. They were how her dad made a living and they perfumed the swampy air every spring. But the work took its toll on everyone, including her dad. All those beautiful oranges were ultimately meant for other people. And behind it all was the low hum of the new Florida, where the symbol of the state would morph from an orange to a big-eared mouse. One measure of our strength is how we adapt to change, because it's coming. Ann Hall had to deal with a lot of it. Her family splintered, she awakened to a different sexuality, and the whole world she knew nearly disappeared. It's not easy to look back on all that and try to make sense of it. It takes a tough eye and a tender heart. Luckily for us, those were a couple of the gifts Ann Hall was given, down there in Florida, out among the orange groves. 
Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening.